Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say, but I really mean it. Actually, I think I mean it every time I say it. We have got a lot to cram in in our time together. A couple of notices from me, then I will look ahead to the uh, new framing, really, that uh, is uh, in reference to Sunak, Starmer, and indeed Ed Davey, the leader of the Lib Dems, uh, in the light of the local election results. Um, we'll delve deep about the future course. You must be sick to the death, although it sort of all came to an abrupt end with the coronation in that glorious cinematic juxtaposition of a democratic exercise cast aside by uh, this uh, feverish celebration of a non-democratic exercise. But anyway, as I say, it had a cinematic quality, that juxtaposition. But we won't kind of delve deep in terms of the statistics and figures from last Thursday, because that has been done to death by the time you listen to this. We'll look ahead. And then some sensational and thought-provoking questions. Uh, uh, Nick Radcliffe, our one of our, uh, <laughs> what was I going to call him? Gloomy anti-growth correspondence from Edinburgh. Uh, self-quoted, Nick. You said, I can be the one cited as against growth. But actually, he's uh, really triggered a debate. And uh, there will be more on that. Your take, or some of your takes, I've had loads and loads of questions. I'm really sorry if I haven't got time to read them all out on um, the local elections, often from your local perspective, wherever you are, um, close to where the elections took place. A bit on the monarchy in the light of the uh, reflections last week. And so, yeah, tons to get in. Uh, Just a couple of uh, notices. Live at uh, King's Place on uh, Monday, this coming Monday, May the 15th at 7 o'clock. Do come along because we're going to delve deep there. Um, We will be looking and exploring and posing and trying to answer the question. Are we now in or about to be in a changed political landscape? Looking particularly at Keir Starmer and the similarities between him and New Labour in the build-up to 1997 and the differences. And in doing so, I think it shines quite a lot of uh, light on him. So that's Monday, May the 15th, live at King's Place. It will be the last live show in London before the Edinburgh Festival. So hopefully see lots of you there. Also, thank you those who, um, uh, from the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, uh, joined in our uh, live uh, video session, Zoom session, the other day. For those of you who missed it on Patreon, it's available. You can take a look and let us know what you thought um, via the email, which is steverick14 at icloud.com. Now, I'm going to do something which I'm sure we all do all the time in politics, which is to uh, behave in a contradictory way. The other day, I tweeted, having followed the broadcast round of interviews on Sunday in the light of the local elections, uh, where again and again and again, the person Labour had put up where Streeting was asked about what will you do in a hung parliament? And I thought, oh, God, here we go. It's, it's easy, lazy, 
questioning because no politician will say, well, actually, I do assume we're not going to win an overall majority. And therefore, I will tell you now, we will work with the Liberal Democrats or we won't work with them or we will, you know, it's just, uh, but this now will be a permanent line of questioning. And I pointed out in this tweet that um, actually, it's even more sort of silly than that, in that the only elections that have in recent times led to hung parliaments directly were the ones where no one was questioned about what they would do in a hung parliament. So, you know, in 2010, for example, the commentariat had decided and and largely wanted to see uh, Cameron have a big victory over Gordon Brown's Labour. And that was the sort of tenor of the commentary and the questioning throughout the uh, election campaign. There was no focus on what would you do in a hung parliament, and there was then a hung parliament. And everyone was really surprised when Cameron made that offer to Nick Clegg. And similarly, in 2017, the commentariat had decided and had largely looked forward to a big majority for Theresa May, uh, endless pieces about how Corbyn's Labour would be slaughtered down to 100 seats if they were lucky, and there was a hung parliament. And there had been no speculation in advance as to what would happen in a hung parliament. Um, so, you know, when there is one, there tends to be no speculation. And yet here we go again. That's not a prediction that there won't be next time. There may well be. Uh, but speculating about precisely what happens in that circumstance is close to pointless because what happens with parties and party leaders is that they pitch at a general election in the hope of securing whatever they can secure. That doesn't mean they're against tactical voting. And tactical voting was, of course, one of the significant things that happened on uh, Thursday in those local elections. But they're not going to go around saying it. They're going to make their pitch for their party. And then the cards fall and you work out what the hell to do afterwards if there is a hung parliament. But you see how I've contradicted myself. Having said or implied it's pointless, I've been talking about a hung parliament for the opening minutes of this uh, podcast. The other kind of word of caution uh, about (laughs) talking about hung parliaments is actually in general terms with these local elections. It is so tempting to extrapolate big lessons uh, from results that kind of guide us to what will happen in a general election. But I would be quite wary of doing that because there's a long way to go. I know that's a cliche, but, you know, the autumn of next year is still the likeliest time. That's kind of 18 months away. And we know some of the things that will be happening in the meantime. Uh, the media onslaught on Keir Starmer will be intense. Uh, that will be, by that I mean the newspapers, the mail, the telegraph, the times. When they turn, they will turn big. That will have an influence on the BBC and that will put Keir Starmer un- and his advisers under intense pressure. And who knows what will come of that? I suspect it will have some impact could lead to a narrowing of Labour's poll lead, whatever that is, whether it's the poll lead as reflected in those local elections or the opinion poll lead, which suggests it's a bit higher. Remember, London didn't vote, Scotland didn't vote, etc., etc. 
We also know from Sunak's perspective that there will be huge pressures on him in the coming months, uh, big decisions to be made on tax, public spending. They're clearly going to cut taxes in the build-up to the general election. But he is this self-proclaimed fiscal conservative who will be uneasy about funding those with no explanation as to where the money is coming from. Uh, Yet he has no room for public spending cuts because public services are on their knees. Um, And indeed, one of the issues apparently in the local elections, according to defeated Tories, was things like you can't phone and get hold of your GP. And as Wes Streeting pointed out on Sunday, there's a reason for that um, beyond um, sort of... Uh, make it impossible to have the engaged tone when you ring a GP is that there's a shortage, a big shortage, as there are of nurses and others. And so in some ways, things will get harder for Sunak uh, as the build-up to the election, general election, really intensifies. And so I think all we can say at this point is that tactical voting is happening that there is a strong anti-conservative mood. Well, it's been erratic, to be honest. The The revival of the Conservative Party has been really interesting. Remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that um, Geoffrey Wheatcroft, the writer, wrote a book. It was in the final years of New Labour, The Strange Death of Conservative England. It was an echo of a famous book written about the strange death of liberal England early in the 20th century. And then what happened was very interesting. Uh, Cameron, in spite of, as I said earlier, the commentariat who couldn't bear Gordon Brown because he was a sort of centimetre to the left of Tony Blair, all thought and hoped Cameron would win with a big overall majority. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, We were still witnessing, in a way, a sort of moribund conservative England, even after the financial crash and a long period of Labour rule. Then he just, Cameron, managed that overall majority. Then, in 2015, then Theresa May lost it. And Johnson only managed to win big on the back of Brexit and that weird, fragile coalition, which is starting to fall apart between the Red Wall and elderly Tory voters in the south of England, etc. And so it's always been quite precarious and fragile. And it looks as if the anti-conservative forces uh, have had enough and are finding ways of to lose over a thousand seats, the Conservatives, in an election which was on the back four years ago of a period where they were incredibly fragile. 2019, Theresa May was gone within weeks of those local elections four years ago, and they've lost another thousand seats. Theresa May was mighty compared with where the Conservatives are now. So I think it's very difficult to see circumstances where if this potent combination remains in place, Sunak wins an overall majority. And if there is, here we go again, we, I, here I go again, contradicting myself. If there is a hung parliament, Keir Starmer becomes prime minister. Obviously, he becomes prime minister if there is an overall majority.
Now, it might be tempting for Keir Starmer to say, um, oh, well, you know, even a hung parliament is an epic triumph in the light of uh, what I inherited in December 2019. Uh, And of course, on one level, it sort of is when you uh, inherit a near landslide majority defeat to your party, it can take a huge amount of time to recover. However, I don't think he should think in those terms. I think he uh, is facing uh, the end of a long period of Tory rule, which even Tory historians in a hundred years' time will conclude it was a freakishly bad period of rule from 2010 to the next general election. The Cameron and Johnson were shallow game players, that uh, Theresa May could not master the politics, even though she had an assiduous form of integrity, and that Rishi Sunak is new to politics at this level. And therefore, I mean, Rishi Sunak has never had to work out how to win an election. Remember, in December 2019, he wasn't even Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was a junior member of the Cabinet, uh, propelled to the Chancellorship suddenly a few months later, uh, when Dominic Cummings sacked the then Chancellor, Sajid Javid. And so this is all new to Sunak, and that should be a gift to Labour too. Um, I remember, I think I've mentioned it before, saying to Keir Starmer when I bumped into him once during his lowest period after the Hartlepool by-election, I think you will win and win an overall majority, not least because you are facing a record of conservative misrule. Um, If you compare it even to John Major's government that Blair faced in 97, uh, where he had Michael Heseltine, John Major himself was a figure of substance, Uh, Ken Clark in that Douglas Hurd had been a long-running foreign secretary, replaced by Malcolm Rifkind. These were all significant, weighty figures. And you look at this lot now and that cabinet, Suala Braverman and all the others. Starmer should be aiming for a majority. Ted Heath did it. He faced a Wilson uh, majority in 97, which is as big as the Tory majority now, and he turned it round into an overall majority. So I don't think Keir Starmer should conclude, oh, if it's a hung parliament, I become prime minister, there's a Labour government in some form, that is an achievement in itself. I don't think it will be. So, and yet it's not wholly surprising that if you follow a kind of echo of a new Labour rule book in the build-up to 97, where you offer little bits here and there, in addition to the Conservative misrule, incremental changes you're not going to get the level of enthusiastic support that you need to get over the line for an overall majority. And that gives the space to the other parties, the Lib Dems and Greens. Now, it might be they all work together and Labour end up with a big majority. That happened in 97, but not necessarily so. And so, you know, it's been one of the themes of our times together that it's not like 97 this election. It's different in terms of the scale of the crisis. And there needs to be, I think, bigger thinking and bigger themes coming forward from Labour if they want to get that overall majority. Now, in the questions which we're coming to, um, there is a scenario where a hung parliament might be healthy 
for Labour uh, compared to um, a big overall majority. But it's one of the things we're going to explore at King's Place next week. I can tell you, hung parliaments are tough, tough, tough. Um, we're going to look back at some of them as part of um, my totally contradictory approach to not, it's not worth discussing what happens in hung parliaments because when we do, they end up with a party winning an overall majority. I'll just give you one example of that to further contradict myself. The 1987 election, the last to be fought by the SDP Liberal Alliance, and they were prominent. David Owen, very charismatic and weighty. David Steele, similarly uh, fascinating character and interviewee. Every single question they were asked in interviews was, would you deal do a deal with the Tories? Would you do a deal with Labour in a hung parliament? Hints that, probably correctly, Owen would be keener to do one with the Tories and steal with Labour, and on it went, and then Thatcher won a landslide. The whole thing was completely pointless. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're going to look, uh, we're going to delve deeper uh, in King's Place, which is also being streamed live if you can't get that, but it'd be great if you can come along, um, because then we you know, we delve deep together live. But now, over to you. A reminder again, if you want to join in uh, the never-ending discussion in the cooperative, uh, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. And I say again, it's really interesting uh, getting hundreds of uh, emails at the moment, um, which is fantastic. And um, uh, yeah, it gives me much food for thought and um, uh, kind of spent ages kind of just selecting questions and so on. But thank you all for contributing. We've got a range here. We're going to delve deep at this point. And we're going to begin, if it's all right with all of you, with a return to this theme of um, is economic growth inherently desirable? Um, and we're going to return to it because Nick Radcliffe, who generated this, start, triggered this debate. He began it in Edinburgh with me when I met him at the Edinburgh Festival last summer. He then uh, wrote an email because I said, Who's Against Economic Growth, which is, of course, a policy end of both Sunak and Starmer. You know, what about the, the means should be the debate? But he said, well, actually, I'm against economic growth. Anyway, he's written a clarification. So I'm going to read that and then we'll continue the debate. Uh, great to hear you engaging on growth. A few quick points that might bring us closer. One, you often say being uh, favouring reform is no good. You need to say what kind of reform. Yes, you do. Growth and national income are the same. There's good economic activity, like sustainably growing healthy food, and bad economic activity, like burning fossil fuels. So the kind of growth matters. Well, Nick, I think that's quite a leap, uh, because, yeah, I mean, but, uh, so are you pro-growth in those terms? Anyway, the good news, as we discussed in Edinburgh last summer, is that a green transition will require massive investment and create massive conventional growth in the short term. Insulating buildings, replacing our energy infrastructure, replacing boilers, upgrading public transport will all generate positive economic activity. Yeah, I'm really, that's great and exciting. He also adds, you very plausibly say that it's easier to redistribute in a growing economy than one with stagnant GDP. 
DP. And I don't wholly disagree. But it remains the case that the economic activity is harmful, then it's a very short term solution. Yeah, okay, well, he says maybe these points will be more persuasive. I'm getting persuaded, Nick, with these. Um, And I think we're moving to fertile terrain, which is, again, what form economic growth should take, rather than to conclude that economic growth is harmful. And now Matthew Alton uh, joins the debate. He said, I'm a graduate student in economics here, just writing to weigh in on the debate about economic growth. We, we're dealing with weighty figures here in our rock and roll politics cooperative. I think Matthew is siding with me and perhaps where Nick is um, with his latest dramatic intervention. Because Matthew says, on the issue of infinite growth in a finite world, it's certainly possible that one day growth will have to cease. However, that's by no means a law of physics. The history of modern economic growth since the Industrial Revolution has been driven by technological and productive innovation, where there has been no bound. The natural resources on Earth 200 years ago are no different to the ones available today. What changes was not the coal in the ground, the wind in the air, or the strength of the sun's rays, but our capacity to harness or exploit them. Uh, Well, yeah, although, of course, yeah maybe the sun's rays have changed as a result of the way we've uh, exploited it. But anyway, long-term economic growth is uh, something that can be combined with technological progress, I think is Matthew's uh, thesis, which in a way is not wholly different from Nick's. So and the, the debate continues, and I've had a lot of questions also about um, how to get coverage for protests, that, um, wondering whether uh, you know, with uh, recent protests have avoided any troublemaking, in inverted commas, law-breaking gestures, but then have got no coverage, um, how to get coverage. But actually, you see, the issue is high up the agenda, this issue of uh, climate change and growth. Um, and it is high up the political agenda, but it's, yeah, raising it several notches further uh, anyway uh, we let, let's let's if it's all right with all of you now move on to a uh, fascinating debate about where we are after these elections now one of our focus group barometer figures is stuart grant stuart voted tory at the last election disillusioned with the tories but hasn't got to labor yet and stuart uh, outlined to me in an email the case for Labour winning an overall majority, but also uh, reasons for caution. And he hasn't yet decided how he's going to vote. He's going to keep us informed uh, in the coming months. You see, you get the equivalent of a Mori opinion poll here with our swing voters. Anyway, it's quite interesting. This is Stuart's take on why Labour might not get there. He mentions one that I mentioned. The Tory press will try and do a Kinnock on Starmer, and he will be vulnerable on key issues where he's changed his position, notably on a previous campaign for a second EU referendum. Labour still aren't giving many of us a reason to switch positively to vote for them, let alone to do so enthusiastically. It's a long way back for Labour after 2019, albeit voting patterns are more fluid nowadays. Yeah, you see, that's the one I disagree with, Stuart. I think people could change very quickly. Uh, as happened in 1970. Scotland has been lost to Labour in recent years. How many seats can they realistically win off the SNP next time? That, of course, is a big, big question. 
time will dull the trust Quateng factor, though won't remove it. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's it. Politics is so fleeting. I, I don't think a Labour government will be allowed to forget the equivalent of a trust Quateng factor. Uh, but the Tory papers will certainly not be reflecting on it. You're right. Boundary changes, voter ID, and the split nature of the anti-Tory vote. Yep, these are all themes which make being leader of the Labour Party the toughest job in British politics. And uh, my reflections on what Keir Starmer should do, isn't doing, is always in the context of acknowledging uh, the, the near impossible job. Thank you for outlining uh, the challenges, uh, Stuart. On another theme of recent weeks, freedom, this potent word that Joe Biden has seized as he makes his bid for the second term from the Republicans, uh, which Labour used very effectively in one election campaign, 1945, when it won a landslide, freedom. Uh, but Thatcher seized in 79 and the Tories have used ever since. And uh, uh, I've got a email from uh, John. I'm not sure of your surname, John who listens from the inner Hebridean Isle of Cole, which is 40 miles long by four wide with a population of 170. And he looks at freedom uh, and the role of the state in very different contexts. Um, He says, luckily where we live, we have agricultural land. We have the sea and all that's in it, animals, chickens, eggs. We can survive on not very much compared with a single mother with three kids on the 15th floor of an inner city block of flats uh, that could only survive in such a context without some state activity for a limited time. But he adds, you see, in terms of the role of the state to liberate and free us up, we have no running water. We get a ferry when we get a ferry. Our ferry went into dry dock three months ago, so we're on a reduced service. We get one plane a week to Oban on a Wednesday. We are suffering depopulation. Yet the Argyll and Butte Council and the Scottish and UK governments seem unable or unwilling to help us survive. You see, you can frame the case for freedom and government activity on the example of um, our correspondent from the Hebridean Isle of Cole who knows that government activity will free them in an island 40 miles by four wide and that links them to a person living in a bedroom flat with uh, hardly the money to keep a roof over their head in overpopulated parts of England. Thank you. Keep listening from there. I'm glad. Obviously, the broadband is good there, um, or I assume it is. Over now to a very different part of England from uh, where we've just been with uh, John, and that's Ian Saunders in Portsmouth. I've been listening since the start of the podcast, but only now feel the need to ask a question. The general consensus, certainly since Sunak took over as PM, is that the Conservatives will be aiming to call an autumn 2024 general election as late as they realistically could in the current Parliament. With the drubbing they've just taken in the recent local elections, could they really afford to head into an autumn election after another loss of local seats in May 2024? Might this year's results accelerate the timetable for the next election and set it in line for next year's local elections? Well, on that, um, the answer is, I think, no, uh, because the opinion polls, unless they dramatically change, uh, will still be favouring 
Labour next May and no Prime Minister, even though he would ache to get out a general election around May because you then don't have to face the hit of a local elections followed by a tough summer. You don't do it unless you think you can win. And if you think you're going to be hit in the May local elections, you're going to be hit in a general election. I still think we are uh, aiming for the autumn of next year or working on the assumption that it will be the autumn of next year. Now, on this thing of a hung parliament, uh, it was very interesting. Both Joe Ruffles, our correspondent in Berlin, and uh, Gillian Oliver. This is what Gillian Oliver wrote, but Joe wrote something similar. I was listening to your latest podcast on my Sunday run and had to stop early to write to ask if you had heard Claire Short on all the local election coverage. She was giving her views on whether Starmer is misguided to be so dependent on Tony Blair's people right now. She said that by the time Blair came along, John Smith had already set out Labour's values, and Blair just had to present them, albeit with a razzmatazz of a new start. But no one was initially confused about Labour's values. For Starmer, it absolutely isn't like that, she said. We've had Corbyn, we've had Starmer's pitch in the leadership election, most of which he seems to have junked. What actually are Labour's values? The open goal here is, there's an open goal here, isn't there? Uh, In the fact that Sumat hasn't put forth his view of the world either, just five disjointed pledges at a time that all our problems seem to be connected. Anyway, is Claire Short right to read 1997 that way? See you in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, see you in Edinburgh, Gillian, definitely. So, yeah, I haven't heard the Claire Short interview. I must do. And and she can be an intelligent reader of British uh, politics. It is unquestionably, too, it's one of the differences I'm going to be exploring at King's Place, which so you can see if you're not around London on the live stream. One of the differences with 1997 uh, which easily forgot. See, New Labour came in 1994, and Tony Blair had already inherited uh, quite a lot of policies, which he couldn't junk, even if he wanted to. Um, it, it, they were uh, the minimum wage, the Social Justice Commission had been set up by John Smith, the pledge to have a referendum on electoral reform, which wasn't held, but was a key binding factor in creating this sort of anti-coalition momentum with Paddy Ashdown and the Lib Dems. They were all in place. And so he had to build and develop on that. Meanwhile, Gordon Brown had been shadow chancellor for some time and had already been working on how you address this conundrum of tax and spend, that you can't commit to many tax rises without being destroyed in a British general election. And yet you face this huge demand for improved public services. And I won't go into it now, but he had ways of addressing it and had delved deep about what you say in public, but what you plan for power. Um, And and that's what made it all quite formidable, flawed in some respects, but formidable. And whether the equivalent weightiness is going on now is a big key question, which we will be exploring in our time together. Thank you to uh, Dominica, who gave her assessment of the coronation from France, our French correspondent, of course. Um, apparently, the coverage was extensive and polite and respectful. 
And she says that it seems to me that it illustrates one example of several, which comes across here about the close bonds between the two nations, France and England, that the right-wing newspapers in the UK don't acknowledge. Um, Yeah. And she also adds, I admire the decision of Michelle O'Neill to attend the coronation ceremony and believe her presence to be a sign of exemplary leadership. If only the DUP could step up to that particular plate. Yeah, we need to keep an eye on the DUP. Um, Say, when I was in Belfast, the audience predicted that the DUP would end up joining the Northern Ireland Assembly, but we're not there yet. Great uh, question from uh, Andrew Summers, who is uh, listening to the podcast while walking along the Costa Brava. All right for some, Andrew. And he uh, wonders whether there is one area where there could be a huge saving in uh, uh, public spending, you know, one department. And he's, he points out the effect would inevitably be that spending would not be uniformly replaced. In the 1990s, the centre-left Canadian government faced with a huge structural deficit, undertook such an endeavour um, where they cut out spending on one particular department and freed up money to be spent elsewhere. Um, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but I can't think where it is, Andrew. You know, there's this old Lord Frosty Frost is saying all the time, who of course got to cut public spending, where? He's never had to uh, focus on these things and explain to an electorate why he's going to uh, do it. Uh, Marion Sainsbury uh, suggests uh, an interview with Will Hutton um, on uh, the issues of short-term uh, capitalism um, and and the ways in which we can plan for the longer term. Uh, yeah, I know him well, Will, and it's a good idea. He'll be a good interviewee. Uh, uh, Andy Kemp is our Lee Rowley correspondent and says Lee Rowley on the back of the uh, local elections could well lose his seat. For new listeners, Lee Rowley, uh, we're watching him closely for completely mad reasons. Um, and it could be that from uh, going up the government ranks, he could lose his seat. But interestingly, Andy says Labour have taken back control of the former uh, Red Wall uh, Council from no overall control. He thinks um, he could, that Labour could have done better in their former heartland. So it's interesting, this slightly ambiguous outcome for Labour of those local elections. Uh, Steve Petrie writes about uh, the coronation uh, that he is in principle a Republican, although he was singing in his choir uh, as part of the celebration this weekend. Um, He says, I think there are uh, answers to some of the issues raised by pragmatic royalists. We don't have to have a President Johnson or Truss. The Irish presidency provides a good example of a directly elected head of state who has little or no executive powers and whose functions look very similar to our monarchs. And while you say that, Steve, I've got to apologise to Venetia Kane, who apparently... I've been uh, completely misapplying her views on this area, saying uh, one of her arguments in favour of the monarchy is we might have ended up with President Boris Johnson. I must have imagined her saying it because she writes, say she hasn't said that, and has also cited the Irish presidency as a model. Yeah, and yeah, we've got so many. Uh, Simon Lockyer on how we get better turnout at uh, local elections. Would localism help? 
uh, Nigel Booth from uh, Madrid wondering about, um, uh, yeah, the lack of coverage in the Extinction Rebellion's recent peaceful protests and what that tells us about protests. These are all big themes, you know, for future podcasts. I'll end, though, on the biggest theme of all from Alex Wilson home in Sheffield. Um, I've seen Keir Starmer twice in recent weeks with ice creams in his hand, once in Great Yarmouth and then in Blackpool. Is the most popular photo op for politicians, do you think, ahead of pulling a pint in a pub and being seen in a hard hat on a construction site? Did the politicians of old do this? I remember Blair and Brown with a flake, 99 each. But what about the likes of Thatcher, Heath and Wilson? Yeah, you see, I think... See, with Keir Starmer, it might be subconscious, but it's an echo of Blair and Brown with their ice creams. That was during the 2005 election. They were getting on terribly at the time. They loathed each other at the time. But there they were performing uh, (laughs) to the point where you wouldn't have guessed quite what was going on behind the scenes in that election. Um, And Blair bought (laughs) Brown an ice cream. And they ate it together as if they were the closest of friends on holiday together. And I wonder, wonder whether subconsciously Keir Starmer thought, oh, yeah, an echo again, new Labour echo. Here am I with an ice cream. Um, it's hard to look unrelaxed with an ice cream, I suppose. So it's quite a good aid. Um, but I think it was Blair and Brown who started the ice cream fashion. I can't remember, but others of you might, Thatcher, Heath and Wilson campaigning with an ice cream in their hand and will it be a campaigning technique in the general election that helps to propel Keir Starmer to number 10 or will we have to delve deeper I think we're going to have to delve much much deeper actually Um, and we will do of course in the coming months and say live at King's Place on Monday and thank you all for listening and brilliant emails on so many different things. And I'm kind of reading them with, uh, yeah, I get excited when each one arrives. And um, yeah, let's all get together. So we've got a great interview at the end of the week and uh, more to come when we gather to make sense of it all. Thanks so much. Bye. <laughs>